Good morning, church. Can we agree to give Chad Strobel a big round of applause for coming back? It's so good to see you, Chad. What a champ. For those who don't know or don't know Chad, uh, he had a, a major surgery, had a kidney replacement in October, end of October, roundabouts. What's that? 28th. The 28th. And this is his first Sunday back because it's been a long road to recovery, and man, brother, it's good to see you. So thanks for, thanks for worshiping with us here today. We've been praying for you. God is good. And thank you for those here who have been faithful in their prayers for Chad. Um, prayer is the topic at hand this morning. I, I have been looking forward to Matthew 5, Matthew 6, 9 through 15, since we started this, to, to, to preach on uh, the Lord's Prayer, or what we're going to call this morning the Lord's Model Prayer. Uh, one, because it's such a foundational text for the church, right? And two, because prayer's hard. Prayer's hard. Jesus realized that. That's why he gave us this, this prayer. We, we know we need to pray, right? But often we don't know how to start. And maybe that's you today. Maybe you don't have much of a prayer life. Maybe you don't know how to start in prayer or how to practice prayer daily. Maybe you grew up in an environment where prayer wasn't a normal thing and you're kind of trying to figure it out. Well, today's text is for you. Maybe you're dealing with a slightly different problem with prayer. Maybe you have some type of prayer life, but when you pray, maybe you feel guilty. Maybe you deal with guilt in your prayers because our prayers don't sound right or we didn't pray long enough or something like that, right? Prayer can be stressful, not only difficult, but stressful. What if we pray the wrong thing? What if we ask the wrong way? Or what if we spend too much time talking about ourselves? Or what if I forget to pray for the friend I said I was going to pray for? It can be stressful. And last week in Matthew 6, Jesus told us two ways of praying poorly, if you'll recall. Right? You can pray poorly like a hypocrite making sure other people see you when you pray, or you can pray like a pagan or a Gentile, heaping up empty words, trying to convince God of something. So there's two wrong ways of prayer, and if you struggle with your prayer life, maybe that stressed you out even more. Right? Should I even pray in public because my motives are all messed up and I can't quite parse those out? Should I even pray for something more than once? Again, prayer can be difficult and stressful for many of us. The spiritual discipline that's supposed to be our side of the conversation with God, which is a beautiful gift from the Lord, can become this stress-inducing chore that we dread. And today's text is for those in that camp too. No matter where you are in your prayer life, Matthew 6, 9 through 15 is for all of us, even for the, the prayer veterans and the prayer warriors. It's good to have a reminder of the basics, right? So let's stand together and read Matthew 6, verses 9 through 15. Again, Matthew 6, verses 9 through 15. This is the word of the Lord. 
Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Let's pray as you're seated. Lord, we want our thoughts this morning on prayer to be your thoughts. So now we humbly come before your word and we ask that you would give us insight by your spirit. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would open this up for us so that we can apply it to our lives. We ask that you would mold us to Christ in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we set aside these verses uh, and we went over Matthew 6, 1 through 8, and skipped down to 16 through 18. And do you remember the principle that we picked up from Matthew chapter 6, verse 1? If you don't remember, look back there. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people, Jesus says, in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Jesus had just told us in Matthew 5, 48, to be perfect as the heavenly Father is perfect. And now in 6, 1, he tells us to beware, right? Remember, be perfect, but be careful. Be perfect, but be careful. We're so easily tempted to make it look like we're perfect without actually having a righteousness that reaches into the heart. And for that, we need the starting point of our spiritual disciplines to be secretive, actually. To start out secretive. We need a secrecy in giving, a solitude in prayer, and a hiddenness in fasting. Instead of being like a hypocrite or a play actor of righteousness, we need to practice each of these things before the Lord. I'm rehashing all of these points from last week because the Lord's prayer, or again, what we're calling the Lord's model prayer, is smack dab in the middle of all of it. Jesus is in the midst of making the point of being aware of practicing our righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them when he gives us this prayer. In fact, the context is actually more narrow than that. Look back to verse 7. <clears throat> and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. Verses 7 and 8 are the beginning of the digression Jesus takes that leads to the Lord's model prayer. It's in this immediate context that we have to understand the prayer. Okay, so a mistake we commonly make with the Lord's prayer is we just take it straight out of Matthew 6 with nothing around it. And we use it. And that's okay sometimes, but this morning we're going to try to leave it where it is. So instead of praying like pagans, heaping up repetitious, empty prayers in order to be heard by their weak, impersonal gods, we ought to start with the knowledge that the one true God knows everything we need before we ask. Amen? That's the immediate context. We don't need long, loud prayers to be heard by God. We don't need fancy showmanship. We don't need to remind him of what we need. This is God 
we're talking about. He knows everything. He doesn't need to be convinced to do his will. So the prayer that Jesus gives us ends up being shockingly brief. But even though it's brief, the power and strength of this prayer have made it completely and utterly timeless. Christians have always prayed this prayer in services and in personal devotions, using it as a written prayer, reading it right out of here, or as a model to build their prayers off of. And they've also used it as a mean to study and teach prayer, because this is how God himself, Jesus, wants us to pray. So the structure of the prayer is important, even though it's simple. There's a brief address, followed by a section, worshiping God, followed by a section, petitioning God. And then historically, the church has tacked on a doxology that doesn't occur in the ESV. But if you have the King James or the New King James, you'll have that doxology. And we'll get to that. It's simple. It's short. Anyone can pray this prayer. It is for you. And yet it's not simplistic. It's simple, but not simplistic. The phrases the prayer contains are multi-leveled statements worth much meditation. You could write an entire devotional book on the Lord's Prayer, and many have been written. So let's jump in and meditate. Let's look at each each piece. We're going to break down the prayer into three main parts today. The address, worship, and petition. Because in this model prayer, Jesus teaches us three main practices. So first how to address God in prayer. Look at the text starting in verse 9. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven. That's how Jesus would have us start our prayers. Our Father in heaven. And the address is, again, simple, but fascinating, powerful. And each word is worth looking at. First, we learn that this prayer is a communal prayer. It's not my Father in heaven, it's our Father in heaven. Now, it's fine to use this prayer in your personal devotional lives, and you should. But it's worth noting that Jesus wants us to pray this together, and he wants us to pray generally together. So if you left last week's sermon thinking it would be better not to pray in public, then make sure you circle that first word, our, in your Bible. Because Jesus definitely wants us to pray together and to pray often and to pray out loud. And when we come together and we pray, like when Wayne came up here this morning, the idea is we're all praying his prayer together in agreement, right? He's not entertaining us with fancy words. You are sitting there, not just passively, but saying, yes, Lord, amen, right? That's what a communal prayer is. And it's a beautiful thing that a whole church, a gathered body like this, can come together and pray the same prayer to the Lord. Now, the issue, all the way back from last week, wasn't ever what was being said. The issue was the heart, the motivation. What motivates us to pray with others? Is it to be seen and heard as fancy and smart? Do we want to be looked at as a titan of prayer? Or is our goal, our motivation to be heard by God? So we can't neglect to pray together. We just have to have the right motivation. We have to have the right heart in prayer. 
And when we pray together, not if, but when we pray together, we say our Father. Our Father. And this might seem like a minor thing because we pray to the Father all the time. Maybe we even repeat it too much in our prayers as a vocal crutch over and over saying Father. Notice that about your own prayers. But this is a pretty unique move by Jesus. It might seem normal to us, but it's unique for his time. Most of the teachers at the time of Christ would have said something like, in an address, our great God and Lord, or great King of heaven, or so on and so forth. But Jesus calls him Father. And of course, Jesus prays like this when he's by himself. Whenever we see Jesus praying, he addresses God as Father, like in the high priestly prayer in John 17. But, but right now, in the model prayer he's giving his disciples, Jesus teaches them to pray to their Father. Okay, so that's really astounding. Jesus is the Son of God. Right? Amen? Jesus is the Son of God. And so for him to pray to the Father makes sense. His relationship with the Father is not really approachable. It is something completely other. His relationship to the Father is beyond words. He is the Son of God in a unique way. He calls God Father in a unique way. Yet he tells his disciples and us to call God Father. Because through the cross and the empty tomb, we have been adopted into the family of God. Praise the Lord. And because of our union with Christ, we too are sons and daughters of God. So we can rightly approach the creator of the universe and call him Father. Again, praise the Lord. And if that doesn't make you feel a little bit humble today, I don't know what will. Because which one of us deserves to call God Father? It's so normal to us, we think that that's the only way to do it. And we lose sight of the fact that it's a very special privilege that we can call God Father. None of us deserves to call Him Father, and yet we can. And some have taken this part of the address to mean that we can't pray to other persons in the Trinity that we should only pray to the Father. And the Reformation, the Reformation project was right to teach that we pray to the Father through the Son in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's how our prayers work. But those who hold to that as a hard and fast rule kind of miss Jesus' point. His point is, we can call God Father. That's his point. That should astound us, and it doesn't. And that's unfortunate. Because we so quickly forget the second clause in the address. Our Father in heaven. He is our Father, but He's also the God of heaven. So there's this wonderful balance Jesus introduces for us here. We have the God who is immediately available to us as the Father, and yet He's the God of heaven, who is not dependent upon us and who is utterly different from us. Who of us understands even the elementary things of heaven? Nobody. God is not a great big man that we have a ton of things in common with him. He's just not. Anything that we have in common with God, he's given to us. He is the God and creator of the universe, completely different than us and complete and perfect in himself. 
God is beyond grasp. And anything that can be known about him, he's told us. That's amazing. He is the God of heaven. He does not need us. And he does not need us to pray to him to do his will. And that's the beauty of this address. Both of those things are true. The God who does not need us calls us sons and daughters. This is the fear of the Lord. To rightly understand who God is, rightly, as if we can always approach him rightly. But to understand who he is basically, and yet approach him in relationship anyway. That's the benefit of prayer in our lives every day when we do it right. It's the daily exercise of the fear of the Lord. Prayer is the daily exercise of the fear of the Lord. When we know who God is, and yet we approach him anyway. The address in verse 9 brings us to a right orientation. The right orientation we're supposed to have in prayer. We don't approach God willy-nilly. We don't approach God as a buddy, or as a servant, or as a magical genie. He is the God and King of all creation, the sustainer of the universe, who upholds the fabric of reality by his very being. Yet he is our Father. He is our Father who will not separate us from his love. Praise the Lord. Both are true. He is our Savior, our Redeemer, and our reason to live. Do you have both of those things in mind when you pray? The great majesty of God and that He is your Father. With those two things in mind, it's no wonder that the next place Jesus takes us to is worship. So in second, Jesus teaches us how to worship God in prayer. There are three clauses that fit under this section. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The ESV, which I love, this is a great translation, preserves the traditional language of the King James version here and in in other places in the prayer. And that's not a bad thing at all. It's a very good thing. We want to pray the same way we've prayed as English people, English-speaking people for hundreds of years. But what does it mean to pray, hallowed be your name, and things like that. If you have an ESV Bible, you probably have a footnote with an alternate ending or reading that says something like, let your name be kept holy. And when we pray this, hallowed be your name, we're asking God to do something. We're asking him to make himself known to all as holy. We're asking him to make people recognize him as holy. But it's not just a request that God make people see him as holy. It's a worshipful expression of our own realization that God indeed is holy and that we want other people to see it too. We realize he's perfect and set apart from all things, that nothing is like him and nothing can change him. It's also a prayer that we would continue to have that on our minds. Let your name be kept holy by me. And here we find a chance to examine our hearts, don't we? Do we keep God's name as holy? By name, we mean both the Word, Jesus, or God, or Yahweh, and the reputation 
of God? Is his name on our minds and on our mouths more in expression of frustration and anger than as praise? By our actions and through our walks, do we protect God's reputation, his name? Do people see our way of living as a desire to honor the Lord? To keep his name holy? When we pray, hallowed be your name, as one of the very first things we pray, we recognize that the goal of life is not that we take priority, but that God's name and his holiness and his reputation take priority. We worship him as the holy God, and we recognize that our holiness is completely secondary to his. Our holiness is only a byproduct of his holiness. We are only made holy because he is holy first. May the Lord make us holy. Amen? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come is the next phrase. The kingdom of heaven has been a major theme throughout the gospel of Matthew. It was the subject of Jesus' sermon Sermons throughout the land of Israel repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We've seen the kingdom of heaven pitted against the kingdom of hell as Satan tempts Jesus in the wilderness and as Jesus casts out demons in Matthew 4. And in the beatitude, it is the promise of two beatitudes. If you recall, the first and the last. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's a constant theme throughout. And now Jesus tells his followers to pray, your kingdom come. When we pray this, we acknowledge that Jesus' kingdom has already come in one sense in the church. We're praying that his kingdom would spread in the church. That's the already nature of the kingdom of heaven. When we pray, your kingdom come, one part of that is we pray, your kingdom grow. May you use me to do it. But there's a not yet nature of the kingdom of heaven. You'll recall all the way back in those early chapters of the gospel, talking about the already and not yet nature of the kingdom of heaven. In one sense, it is here in the church. And in another sense, it is coming still. So when we pray your kingdom come, we're also praying for him to establish his heavenly kingdom on earth. We long for the time when Christ returns and sets his rule up here in a visible way. For him to judge sin. For him to end all injustice and oppression and suffering in the world. I wonder if if that's a regular part of our prayer lives. Do we actually desire to see God's kingdom established here on earth in a real way? Or... Do we harbor thoughts like, Lord, would you wait just a little longer? Would you wait until I get married? Would you wait wait until I experience success? Wait until I get that job or have this family or whatever else? Do we really actually today hunger for the kingdom of heaven to come and make all things new? Jesus teaches us that this should be a regular feature of our prayer lives, of our worship. 
That we should desire and even expect him to return anytime, bringing restoration and recreation. And if we're tempted to think that we'd like him to wait until we get to do this, that, or the other, I'd like to remind you that you will never find disappointment in the kingdom of heaven as long as you are a citizen of it. Anything good you think that you have here on earth will be exceedingly greater in the kingdom of heaven. Amen? This is a prayer of worship. We acknowledge by praying this that we are citizens of heaven. And when we pray this, we regularly accept the kingship of God in our lives. When was the last time you acknowledged God's kingship in your life? And in this, we express a desire to see the kingdom brought to earth. Do you acknowledge God's right to establish his kingdom on earth? And do you desire it? If you do, then the next clause won't be a surprise to you at all, right? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If we name someone as our king, we should also want to do his will, right? But it's important that we pray this time and time again because our wills, what we want, are constantly going to and fro. I'm reminded of Paul's statement in Romans chapter 7, verse 15. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. To want to do the Lord's will is one thing. To actually do the Lord's will takes the Lord's grace. In order to do God's will, we need two things. First, we need to know it. And this sounds harder than it actually is. He's given us the scriptures so that we can properly seek him out and know him. In his word, we find all kinds of statements about his will and his will for you individually. We've seen many of them on the Sermon on the Mount. Now, they're not always exactly what we want. We would like a guidance on whether or not we should accept this job or do this thing or start this relationship or so on and so forth. But God's will for us is constantly expressed in his word. So if we want to know his will, we have to read his word. We need to hunger for God's direction and guidance through his word and by the spirit. That's the first thing. But the second thing takes even more grace. We actually have to do God's will. Again, as sinful people, that's harder than it sounds. We want to do the things we ought not to do, just as Paul says. When we pray, your will be done, we're praying for ourselves to do God's will. But we're also praying for God's will to be done everywhere. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God is sovereign over all things. He is the king. He reigns. Heaven is completely perfect, and God's rule is undisturbed there. But earth, earth is full of rebels. Earth is full of those seeking to overthrow God's reign. Now, they they won't succeed. God always accomplishes his purposes and his plans, but sin has run amok. So when we pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we pray that God would rule on earth like he does in heaven perfectly, without any rebels. So once again, we express a desire to to see him make all things right. And in the meantime, it's a prayer that other people would desire to do God's will. It's a prayer of evangelism. 
to prayer we would do God's will, that others would do God's will, and that God would accomplish his purposes. Again, it's a statement of worship. It's an acknowledgement that God reigns and that his will is good and that his will is good for me. So through the first section of the prayer, Jesus has taught us three ways to worship God. We worship, worship him for his holy name and who he is. We worship him for his rule and kingship in our lives. And we worship him for his good will for us and for the world. These three things, when we pray them, associate us with God's work in the world. They're a statement to the Lord and a reminder for ourselves that we are bound up into the plan, into the plan and purposes of God. And we ask in these prayers that his will be accomplished, that he does what he's going to do. And these three things make us hunger for the future, right? When God will establish his heavenly kingdom on earth. And it's only after we worship the Lord that Jesus teaches us, second, third, how to petition God in prayer. He says, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Our petitions to God, the things we ask him for on behalf of ourselves and on behalf of others, those petitions we're told to ask for three things. Provision, forgiveness, and righteousness. By asking the Lord for our daily bread, we recognize that even something as simple and basic as bread comes from the Lord. Now, we're culturally removed from the time of Christ, from the way of life that humans led for thousands of years and for most of human history. The next meal was unknown. And in a culture where wages were given at the end of the day, bread, which is a stand-in here for most basic, the most basic of human provisions, bread was not a given. And at that time, a bad sickness could mean you'd potentially miss out on several days' worth of provision and end in tragedy. But we are blessed with amazing supermarkets and amazing restaurants. We're blessed with plenty of food, and we don't usually have to wonder where our next meal is coming from. I'm particularly convicted of the fact that I think that we don't have anything to eat at home, so we better go out to eat, when in fact I've got a stuffed pantry. We're blessed. When we pray, give us this day our daily bread, we then are asking the Lord for the provisions and blessings that we need from him in order to serve him properly. We recognize that the things that we count as basic, that we think we provide for ourselves, actually come from the Lord. And we can't lose sight of the fact that it's because of the Lord's goodness that we have anything at all. And when we fail to ask the Lord for these basic needs, we risk thinking it's all dependent upon us. We get comfortable in the security of our money and our possessions. When in reality, life has always been dependent upon God and what he gives, his provision. In verses 25 through 34 of chapter 6, Jesus tells us that we should not be anxious about our lives and whether God will provide. 
And there the promise is that God will take care of us. Nevertheless, we're instructed to ask the Lord for the things that we need. What do you need? What do you need to accomplish His plan? Pray for it. And then we're told to ask for forgiveness. Forgive our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. This is the only clause in the prayer where Jesus gives further comment in verses 14 and 15. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also, will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, we know we need to ask for God's forgiveness. Hopefully that is a normal part of your prayer life. And this is a reminder that we need to ask for forgiveness all the time from the Lord, just as we ask for His provision. Debts here in the prayer are a stand-in for sin. No one owes God money. And as we pray for our own forgiveness, we also acknowledge and pray for a fact. It's actually stated as a fact that we've already forgiven those indebted to us. But it's also a prayer for the ability to forgive. It's both. Forgiveness is hard. That's why Jesus takes time to comment on it. In his comments in verses 14 and 15, it seems like our own forgiveness is contingent upon our ability to forgive others. That should give us pause because we're uncomfortable with that. It's another place where Jesus wants us to examine our hearts. A heart that is willing to forgive others is a heart that has experienced the grace and mercy of the Lord. They understand that their debts have been forgiven. And therefore, a heart that is unwilling to forgive reveals a person that has not experienced God's forgiveness. If you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. It's a hard saying. Jesus will flesh this out even further in his parable in Matthew 18, where a servant is forgiven an unfathomable sum of money by a king. But then the servant goes and demands a payment of a very small sum of money from a fellow servant. That servant didn't fully grasp what he had been given in the king's mercy. And so the king sends that servant to debtor's prison, where he would never be able to pay back what he owed. And that's a warning to us. Our ability to forgive, even the most difficult of offenses, is a sign of our forgiven state. So if you are harboring unforgiveness today, a grudge, a broken, unreconciled relationship, I urge you to forgive and to reconcile as best as you can. This is what Christians do in light of God's grace. The final petition is found in verse 13. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now you might be thinking, God doesn't tempt us to sin. And you'd be right. Jesus is using a figure of speech here. He's asking for the negative. And by doing that, he's asking for the opposite. Lead us not into temptation, but into righteousness. Is that a major feature of your prayer life? It harkens back to the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, right? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. 
Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness must actually be people who pray for righteousness. Right? We've already seen how easily we can be led into sin. We can desire to do God's will, but we often do the things we don't want to do. We sin all the time. So how necessary then is the prayer for God to not lead us into temptation, but into righteousness? Even more so, how necessary is the prayer that we be delivered from evil? As saved Christians, we can't ever forget our background, right? We are saved sinners. Sin is our natural bent. We like to sin and we're good at it. So we need to constantly pray for God to lead us into righteousness, into the way of living Christ has set before us, for the ability to kill sin and, and to resist the devil. These are the three things Jesus encourages us to petition God for. Provision, forgiveness, and righteousness. And some translations include the doxology. We mentioned this a little bit earlier. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The doxology is in many later manuscripts that were available to the translators of the King James. But it lacks it in the earliest and best manuscripts. So modern translations usually put this in a footnote. And that's okay. The doxology is totally appropriate to pray and probably comes out of 1 Chronicles 29 anyway. So if you want to pray that in your prayer, please do. The original prayer Jesus taught probably didn't include a doxology. Again, this is a time to reflect on biblical interpretation and how things work. There are some things in the New Testament that were added later by scribes, and how we handle that is important. Right? In, the, in the EFCA, we believe that the Bible is the inerrant word of God, praise the Lord, in the original manuscripts. That's also in there. So we need to investigate and do good studies into what the Word of God actually says. And when we find things that may have been later editions, like this wonderful doxology, we say, okay, maybe Jesus didn't actually teach it, but there's nothing wrong in, act, in praying it for ourselves. So the original prayer probably didn't include a doxology, and that's fine. But have you noticed what else Jesus doesn't explicitly include in the prayer? He doesn't include confession. He doesn't include repentance or thanksgiving or intercession or even the word amen. Does that mean that Jesus doesn't want us to do any of these things in prayer? Of course not. Of course not. Remember, this is a model prayer. As we walked through each of these clauses, I hope that you've seen where confession and repentance and thanksgiving and so on and so forth would fit right in. We're supposed to use this prayer as a starting point. So if you're looking for a starting point on how to pray, use each of these clauses as that starting point. Pray them and then expand on them. We can do this in many places in Scripture. If you're looking for the next step in your prayer life, how to grow your prayer life, I'd encourage you to start praying the Scriptures. Take a psalm, any psalm. Pray the words of the psalm out loud. And where some phrase reminds you of something else, or where the Spirit moves you to pray on top of what the psalm says, stop and pray for that. That's the intention of the Lord's model prayer. 
Jesus wants us to be a praying people who are unconcerned about what we look like to other people. He wants us to pray humble prayers to him. Brief, good, dense prayers, well thought out prayers. And we approach prayer from the standpoint of pleasing the Lord, right? That should be our motivation, our heart's motivation, not to please other people. Because in our prayer, we know we worship him and we ask him for what we need. God is good. And it's appropriate that we respond to him in prayer daily. So if you don't have a prayer life, this is for you. Or if your prayer life has kind of fallen away, pick it up right here. Prayer doesn't need to be stressful. It's a gift. It's a really good gift that our Heavenly Father hears you. Amen? Isn't that a wonderful thing? So I'm going to pray the Lord's Prayer right now as we wrap it up. And and I'm going to use it as a jumping off point to pray pray for things that come to mind as, as I go along and pray. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let's bow our heads. Our Father in heaven, our holy good Father, hallowed be your name. We pray that your holiness would be kept by us, that we would desire to see your reputation and your name be great in Lakeland and in our lives. Lord, we do pray that your kingdom would come. We pray that you would make all things new. But Lord, right now we acknowledge our citizenship We acknowledge that we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And we pray that our hearts would reflect that to other people, that our actions would reflect that to other people, that we would make your kingdom number one. Lord, we ask in that vein that your will would be done, not only in our surrounding area, but in our lives, that we would hunger and thirst to know your will and to do your will. We pray for the ability to be obedient. Lord, we ask that you would give us this day our daily bread, the things that we need every day, the things that we need to do your will. We ask that you would provide those. And if there are individuals here who are suffering because of a lack of provision, we trust you. We know that you do provide. We pray that they would have on their minds today your greatness and your goodness and your ability to provide for them. And Lord, we do pray that you would forgive us our debts. We have a lot of them. We owe you a lot. We've sinned a lot. And we thank you for your forgiveness. We ask for it again today. As we forgive other people, maybe people this morning owe us something. They owe us a reason or they owe us uh, an apology or um, an explanation. Maybe they owe us money or maybe they broke our heart. So Lord, we pray that we would be willing to forgive other people, knowing that that's a sign of our own forgiveness. Pray that that would be heavy on our hearts as we consider your your people that you created in your image, that we would be willing to forgive. And Lord, we ask that you would lead us into righteousness, not into temptation. Lord, we, we pray that we would do the things you want us to do, that we would do your will that we would act righteously with other people in our own lives. And Lord, we ask that you would deliver us. Deliver us from the evil one. 
We pray against Satan in Jesus' name, the work that he'd want to do in our lives. We pray that we would follow you, Lord Jesus, and not seek after our own way, which is evil. So we submit ourselves to you. Because yours is the kingdom. Yours is the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.